0: Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Therner. Today we'll be talking with Professor Casey Walsh about his new book, Virtuous Waters Mineral Springs, Bathing, and Infrastructure in Mexico, out last year, 2000, or this year, 2018, from the University of California Press. And Virtuous Waters is a compelling history of the use of mineral springs, of bathing, and water politics in Mexico. From the final century of Aztec rule to the 21st century, with attention to popular and academic understandings of water, state policy to control and police the ways people heal and efforts of subaltern communities to maintain access and rights. Virtuous waters reveals a new dimension to the politics of water in Latin America. And Casey Walsh is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So welcome to the show, Casey.
1: Thanks, Lance. It's Great to be here.
0: Um, Now, this is not your first book about the politics of water in Mexico. A few years ago, you had a book titled uh, Building the Borderlands uh, about the politics of irrigation and cotton farming in northern Mexico. Why bathing? How did you come on? This topic and uh, why do you think it's important today?
1: It's part of as a story of my own life and you know part of as an intellectual uh, story that I had you know spent so much time in that first project, really doing a sort of political economy of of irrigated cotton, um, mostly in northern Mexico but also the Southwest U.S. and I'd become immersed. I mean, there's a lot of puns that are going to probably come up, that are going to bubble up in this interview. But I was immersed in this question of water politics and um, and how water was used and and the engineering of water. And I, I got so into the weeds with all kinds of understandings of of water that were really sort of cast from the perspective of the state, let's say, or you know, or business people. Who are making use of these waters uh, in productive ways? That I I had sort of lost touch with water itself uh, as a substance as something that people engage with every day, um, and I was I was missing that a little bit in my intellectual pursuits. I am an anthropologist, and so sort of that I guess. Um, what most people would understand and anthropologists be interested in, I am interested in, sort of like everyday cultural experiences that people have. And so is, so the sort of political economy approach is, is, I think, really a powerful way to understand how people's lives are shaped in places like, you know, irrigated cotton zones in in northern Mexico. But that um, everyday experience of engaging with water through drinking and bathing and, and, and you know, even looking at it, well, that was all missing from that first big project. And um, so that was sort of the intellectual process. I began to realize that what um, has recently been called you know, culture of water in numerous places was sort of missing from my own intellectual path. Uh, that book really, really doesn't engage in that deep way with uh, our understandings or people's understandings of water, um, cultural understandings of water. Um, so I made a number of you know, sort of reflections on what culture of water could mean a couple of articles after the book came out. And I became, I became interested in this as a topic, sort of, well, you know, what, 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 will we, what can we say about um, the everyday experiences of, of water and how can that reshape our academic understanding of what this substance is and why it matters, why it matters for humans today and this is of course a pressing issue because there is what people have called a crisis of water throughout the world now um both surface waters and groundwater are you know over allocated they're contaminated they're being depleted and i have a feeling that certainly we can we can do sort of more of the same in trying to fix this problem with sort of more of the same uh approaches that that what we've been taking for 150 years sort of top heavy scientific engineering approaches. And I think we need to, of course, you know, do that, but I feel there's something missing as well. I mean, I feel part of the problem that we've gotten into with our exploitation of water uh, is could derive from that, that, that same way of understanding it as sort of an, a resource, an object out there to be manipulated rather than something that has important um, Impacts on us, uh, values that escape the sort of register of, of you know, dollars and cents and pesos and, and and ways of measuring it that aren't just sort of you know gallons per minute and acre feet and things like this. So, I I began to see all of this being tied together, and you know, in 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 my effort, let's say, to. Try to address this problem of the water crisis throughout the world, and try to understand this as a cultural problem—a problem of water cultures. I was, I was increasingly pushed towards looking at other historically other engagements we've had as humans with water, and um, and the one that I, I like to say this to to my to my students sometimes in my water class, I sort of ask them in a classroom of. 50 or a hundred people, how many people here have ever irrigated, you know, other than watering your, your plants in your patio, maybe, you know, we talk all day long about irrigation and anthropology, the history of irrigation as well. Um, but you know, not many of us have ever really done that. Um, it's, it's a small fraction of the people around the world who actually sort of irrigate, um, things, but everybody, well, almost everybody has, uh, uh, washed their hands today or washed their bodies today and certainly they've drunk water today so these are much more common and uh, quotidian sorts of engagements with water and i think even in that sense um they're they they could be seen uh, in a way as even more important than uh sort of things like irrigation and dam building and these kinds of other activities that humans do um so, I started looking at that, like, well, let's look at the everyday engagements with water bathing and uh and drinking water, and I wasn't terribly aware of of what this history was you know was or would look like i I had a an ongoing interest myself in 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 bathing and in in hot springs in mineral waters in going to the beach in swimming pools um just because of my own life history. I grew up in a very sort of hot place in southern california, so the the pool was a real, a real oasis for, for me growing up. And, um, and then I had kids. I have two, two uh, daughters, and we spent an awful lot of time in the pool as well, and they love it. And so just sort of watching that effective uh, relationship with water uh, in their lives and reflecting upon my own life, I was compelled to really take this on as, a, as an academic question. You know, what is the history of, of bathing? in and i chose mexico because that's the, that's the area that i know the best uh it, you know it's where i was trained to uh, to research and um so it was a continuation in ways on earlier my earlier research on engineering of water and, and cotton production at least regionally it was and so that's how i got involved in this book and then um it was it was a steep learning curve you know i i had to un- deal with a lot of topics that i didn't know that much about i wanted a very encompassing story i wanted to tell a story that could tie together perhaps present-day engagements of this sort bathing and drinking um with engagements that have been going on for you know a long time hundreds if not thousands of years and so it required that i you know do some reading about um how the Romans managed water in Spain, for example, and you know periods of history that I wasn't uh, terribly familiar with. Of course, I'm I'm not I'm an anthropologist. I do a lot of history, but I am an anthropologist. So I was I was uh, it, it was a really rich and rewarding uh, exercise to sort of learn in these new time periods. It was frustrating in some ways because I was. Coming upon this literature with you know with no background in some in some ways, um, but I feel like I did learn a lot. I feel like I've I've done you know justice to the to the time periods that I've tried to discuss um, in the book, and I feel like that long arc is something that can that can shed light on a topic in in a sort of a different way rather than the specifics sort of a, a particular time period you get a lot more about the continuities and the sort of cyclical nature of understandings of water, um, or, you know, ongoing, um, tensions, let's say in different perspectives that, that people have had, uh, towards, towards water, um, these kinds of long-term processes. So, um, I guess that would sort of briefly introduce, uh, that question or answer that question of how, how I got to this topic in the first place.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that was a great introduction. Um, so kind of getting into the history a little bit, I mean, I was surprised to read of just how um, the politics of bathing and of, and of waters figured in, uh, in the post-conquest uh, time period in Mexico and the, in the first uh, decades of Spanish rule. And then again, uh, later in the 18th century uh why was water and bathing uh, important to colonial politics
1: well it was um important i think it was important even before you know anyone landed up on the shores of the of the americas it was a point of struggle in europe uh in iberia um iberia was a country that was it wasn't a country it was a peninsula i suppose uh that was, you know, occupied by lots of different folks, um, competing groups, let's say, or people with different um, religious traditions and different sort of power centers. So the history of, of Iberia, of one, of conflict um, is wrapped up in – or really sets the stage for the contact of Iberians with Americans in in the Mesoamerica in the New World in, in the area now that's sort of like you know Mexico and Central America. And you know, the specifics of this is that the you know when the Christian kings were trying to um you know conquer the Iberian Peninsula or reconquer it, let's say, after a long period of um of is, of Islam and um, and also of, uh, an important influence of, of of Judaism in in that peninsula, they really did take uh, sort of extreme measures to um, you know cultural measures to combat the influence of Islam and Judaism, and and one of that one of those measures was to to police the baths. Um, in Islam and in Judaism, there are sort of r- ritual bathing practices that um, are involved in in. Know in the religious practice, but also the infrastructures of cities and towns, and 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 actually mosques and synagogues as well have um, elements of bathing in them. So there are you know there would be a a bath associated with a mosque in in Iberia, say in the you know 1200s, 1300s, 1100s, um, and You know, I've learned a lot about this from knowing almost nothing before I took on this project. Um, But you know, these these mosques, in a very sort of everyday way, would support the the baths. Would support the mosques. They would charge some admission to them, um, and they would sort of be a a functional part of the of the religious sort of institution and infrastructure. And so, the Christian kings were sort of quite uh, um, worried about these uh, practices as well. Of course, all religious practices uh, that weren't Theirs, and so they went after the, the 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 bathing as as a key sort of sign of of um you know heresy or whatever you'd call it. I'm not don't know the right word. A key sign of of, of somebody who doesn't wasn't a good Christian. Um, and that went into you know all the way up to the 14 1500s. Um, and so when the Spaniards or yeah you know the Iberians Spaniards ar- arrived to the New World. They had only just recently sort of um, geographically taken uh, the Iberian Peninsula. They were still in this cultural struggle struggle to assert this sort of authority of Christianity. And um, one result of this struggle to assert that authority was, in Iberia, a ban on bathing – and a sort of a cultural trend towards not bathing. So, you know, oftentimes we hear about the sort of Middle Ages as being, you know, a time when people did, didn't take baths, and it's it's not entirely true. Bathing continued all through the Middle Ages throughout Europe, uh, especially in these hot springs and mineral springs. Um, they were considered healing and sacred sites. And um, but the vision we get is one of of, of sort of. Um, Dirty and depressed uh, medial, medieval Europe, uh, and what we see in is, I think, a bit of uh, the effect of this sort of Christian prohibition of bathing that's shaped our understanding of, of the sort of the, the un, unwashed uh, medieval masses. Um, and it certainly was true in the 1500s in the Iberian Peninsula that bathing was looked on with with, with suspicion. And then that translated directly into the conquest of the New World. It were it was the sort of the same Iberians, um, you know, who were going to the New World and imposing these cultural practices or trying to on the indigenous people of the Americas. And so when they got there, well, the first one of the first things they saw were that, you know, the Native Americans were were very clean and were very sort of orderly and, and they were marvel. I mean, marveled at their cities. Uh, Mexico City or Tenochtitlan was this amazing city that the chroniclers of the conquest never failed to to sort of um, adulate, right, and, and look at it as this incredible achievement of people. The people were clean, they had sort of public sewers, they had systems set up for bringing in clean water to the city and evacuating human waste and all these kinds of things. Um, Nevertheless, it was suspect, and it was sus- that 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 very sort of attention to um, cleanliness was suspect, particularly because the bath that Native Americans practiced was not an immersion bath, was not sort of a swimming bath or a, or a water bath. It was a steam bath, and that was exactly the same um, kind of a bath that was practiced by, uh, let's say, the Moors in in in, in Iberia. Uh, Muslims. This, the hammam, the steam bath, um, was the way that, that Muslims bathed um, in the bathhouses. And it goes back even farther, back to the Romans. And But nevertheless, that was their Im- image of a bath that was suspect. So when they got to the New World, they saw exactly that same sort of steam bath called the Temescal in, in Nahuatl, in the indigenous language of central Mexico. And immediately that steam bath was considered to be, of course, a problem, um, and this sort of gets us into that deep cultural understanding of bathing because, you know, from what I could learn about the temascal, from reading the secondary literature, is that it was a practice um, and an infrastructure that really involved all sorts of aspects of life. It was about healing. It was also about cleaning. You know, you'd sweat and you'd. Pour water herself and rinse off, so it did sort of physically clean the body. It also healed the body. um it was considered to be a sort of a zone of fertility connected also with agricultural deities. and so in this this space it was also seen to be sort of part of the underworld because it's a the Temascal was usually built as sort of a little a little house, a tiny house in which <clears throat> of mud and adobe and 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 rocks and with a fire that would be outside, but that, you know, you could bring hot, um, stones into the, uh, into the Temescal. So, um, this, this bathing site was seen to be part of the underworld because it was sort of a dark, um, space inside, uh, this, inside this Temescal. For, for all these reasons, then it was, it was a, um, it was a site and a, and a set of practices uh, of indigenous culture that the Spaniards were quite uh, worried about. All, there was a lot of questions of uh, sexuality involved in the Temescal, fecundity. Uh, and so all these things sort of um, set off the alarms, for, let's say, for the conquering Iberians. On the other hand, and this is one of these concepts that I try to pull through with the whole book, there's there's both promise and peril um, throughout, throughout the history of bathing. Bathing is seen as both something that's full of promise, to clean, to heal, to order, uh, morally order the masses, as, as well as it's seen as a perilous uh, practice that can lead to um, sort of un, unmonitored, unpoliced sexuality. It can, it can include um, the mixture of different social classes. It can question the boundaries of race, um, so at the same time that it's 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 it it's a, it holds lots of promise for cleanliness and order and progress and these kinds of things to to use terms from the nineteenth century, it also um, it also represents that peril the peril of sort of the uncontrolled associ- sociability or sociality of of the other of other people. So for rulers in in Mesoamerica, that was something they from the very very beginning they tried to police. And uh, the most clearly in terms of sexuality. They had sort of in the book there's a series of quotes by sort of priests who were interested or you know um in this in the Temascal, in which they would go and sort of interview people and ask them about their sexual practices there which were of course were seen to be um, um bad and and morally questionable. So so yeah, this was sort of an immediate first um, confrontation in in between Iberian and American um, bathing practices and traditions that then continues to develop really throughout the history of of Mesoamerica. Mesoamerica, as as many people might know, you know, Mexico as a, a colonized uh, society is one in which um, there's a constant effort to uh, continue to sort of rule over a a, a population that is mostly indigenous or sort of post-indigenous and rule it over by a group that's from outside. So sort of the European-American contact or, or conflict sort of unfolds over centuries um and you know people have talked about this a lot about questions of development dependency and these kinds of things but here we see it in the in the framework of bathing um you know how do sort of ongoing traditions and evolving traditions of, of bathing interaction with water interactions with water that are generated in europe how do these in, engage with um indigenous Meso-American traditions? Um, and we can see this same question of promise and peril and policing unfold throughout the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries as well.
0: Yeah, you know, in in Mexican history, um there's often there has been for over a half century now a lot of talk about medical mestizaje, like a, a blending of Spanish or European and and indigenous modes of healing. Do you think that is present in the bathing culture, or is mestizaje even a useful way to think about the interactions that are
1: happening around bathing and, and the use of healing waters? That's a that's a really good question, and you know th- we could answer it in many sort of theoretical ways, um, critiquing the notion of mestizaje, and there are other words that people like to use, like hybridity and and others. Um, but but clearly, you know, some some engagement was happening, some sort of um, uh, confrontation in the beginning, and and sort of ongoing negotiation of of power, and and uh, through time. So, the bathing practices that I that I could see in the, in the arch- in the archival record and secondary sources do do show that engagement. Um, whether it's a mixture is or how you want to characterize it, you know, or some other, um, some other term is, you know, a secondary issue, I'd say, but there certainly was this sort of mixture, let's say, over time of, of elements of bathing practices from both traditions. Um, I I could see early on, in fact, what's interesting is, um, and, and, so there's a couple of ways I go about thinking through this. And the first is that they were never entirely sort of, Homogeneous traditions uh, to begin with, it wasn't sort of like you had uh, two uh, unitary, um, sort of totally coherent traditions that then came into contact. Uh, In both Iberia and Mesoamerica, water cultures were already a sort of negotiated mixture of influences. Like in Iberia, it was, you know, Spanish. Well, there's Christian and there was Islamic and there was Jewish bathing traditions and there was sort of an ongoing Negotiation of how those infrastructures were built, et cetera, et cetera. It was a fragmented sort of a cultural formation, and the same with Mesoamerica. So, I kind of push back against the, some of the assumptions of mestizaje as a concept by showing a little bit of the sort of history before this contact was made. as As the as the as the sort of Mexican bathing culture then uh, evolves over time, you continue to see this. Um, Engagement between um, existing traditions, let's say, and then ones that are 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 moving in um, or coming in. European bathing traditions are constantly evolving throughout the sort of early modern and and uh, modern periods, and you do get that as in in Mexico. You know, the the sort of the medical the medical doctors were reading their colleagues in Europe um, and applying the new. Uh, new techniques and new understandings of what waters were to the Mexican context. On the other hand, you had sort of long simmering popular traditions of bathing um, in in Mexico that were part of this uh, this sort of mixture as well. Um, and you, you get the same for Europe. I mean, you have elite bathing traditions and you have more popular ones. It, one, one case which is really interesting is sort of in the 1830s and 40s, you know, the, the water there's a, a man named Preisnitz. I don't know if I pronounce that right. Preisnitz. I think he's from somewhere in sort of Eastern Europe, um, Silesia, and he becomes wildly popular for Europeans uh, because he's sort of a sort of a local. Um, you know, sort of upper farmer, upper stratum of farmers. And he has a, a place, a farm in which people come to, to sort of take a water cure that he has devised. And it's really just cold water, cold water, um, very sort of austere food he serves. and But people, you know, make these pilgrimages from all over Europe and even from the United States to take the waters there. Hydropathy, hydrotherapy. And this water culture from... Which is sort of a subaltern formation in Europe, then also moves across the Atlantic and ends up informing um, an, another kind of a water uh, and curing practice uh, in in Mexico, especially in Western Mexico Guadalajara. So, you, and and then the doctors, the sort of more officially sanctioned, let's say, doctors are pushed back against this sort of subaltern medical uh, practice, the vulgar beliefs of the people. Um, at the same time that local priests in in Western Mexico are upholding this um, subaltern water cure. So it's a very interesting set of uh, influences that spans the, the Atlantic. You get different sorts of influence from from Europe taking form and taking root in different ways in the Americas. And you get the ongoing adherence to things like the Temascal in this this Mesoamerican steam bath that, that that um was practiced strongly until about the 19th century when it starts to fade a bit. Um, uh, it had been made into a Mexican sort of a practice. All of the Indigenous sexual uh, connotations and religious connotations most of those had been at least for you know in the cities most of those had been sort of displaced from the Temescal's practice although there were still people uh, you know using Temascals in Mexico in ways that were very sort of ancestral like sort of after giving birth, take the steam bath um, there's sort of these very old traditions about using a Temascal a lot of the, a lot of the aspects did were purged, let's say, um, from it, which allowed it to continue on as a a sort of a mixture of Spanish and indigenous um, bathing practices. Uh, So, you you know, you do get, you do see this um, ongoing mixture, but it's not one in which there are sort of two homogeneous traditions that sort of come to a mixture, but rather many different sorts of influences are coming together across the Atlantic um, to form this bathing culture.
0: Yeah, uh, that was a fantastic answer. Um, So one of the themes that is uh, recurrent in this book, which I found very intriguing and uh, gave me a lot to think about, was this uh, change, uh, this cultural shift towards thinking of water as uh, multiple things, as water is having many different types and, and different species of water, uh, towards the idea of water as an abstract, singular, um, molecular, uh, element, um, or not element, but, uh, molecule. Uh, how did that really show up in Mexico?
1: Well, this is an interesting, um, this is one of those, one of these concepts or, or, or questions about the history of water that, that I, you know, I didn't, find by myself in the archives it was um coming out of a, a couple books jamie linton has a book called what is water and it's a very interesting uh, account of the way that water as a as as, as a thing as a stuff itself was was uh, reconceived in in modern uh, yeah. modern europe mostly uh, it, it, through the the development of um chemistry uh and medicine um and so i sort of i saw that and i thought i hadn't really seen that and once I was informed by that argument I did begin to see it all through the the history in the archives um, essentially the argument is that you go back before say the mid-18th century and the way that people talk about waters is as multiple different sorts of things Um they're not, it's not water H2O. It's not a sort of a chemical understanding of a of a molecule um, that's sort of uniform across the universe. It's they're they're seen as sort of um fluids that emerge in particular geographical settings. And so there's a sort of a a climatological understanding of water as a product of its environment. That goes along with an understanding of people as a product of their environment as well, and sort of all of these. Different things in an environment are are related. So waters that emerge in, you know, um, in uh, you know, in different rivers are different sorts of waters, and the people knew this because when they used waters to say boil beans, they would say this water doesn't work to boil beans, and this other one does. Or in this Mexico City, which had a number of different waters. Uh, Coming through different aqueducts, the people were quite clear that the the water from the Chapultepec springs, which are sort of closer in towards the city, and the ones that had been used by by uh, to to feed Tenochtitlan, the original Aztec city, um, back in the 1300s um, before conquest, those waters were saltier. Those waters were harder. Those waters had more dissolved minerals in them. Um, the, the cleaner waters that were later brought in by the Spaniards from up higher in the, in the mountains around Mexico City, those were softer. They were clearer waters. They had less dissolved solids. And, you know, people knew this, and they would use these waters for different things. They would wash clothes with the less salty water because it made better suds, um, for example. They would— boil vegetables with one water and not the other. They would wash themselves or their horses at their houses with one water rather than the other. Um, So I began to see this very important um, aspect of our, oh not ours now, mostly, but back then, certainly the the, the cultural understanding of waters as sort of individual kinds of things. And this, out of this grew um, a huge effort, uh, by scientists, natural philosophers to actually understand what made those differences. And the argument goes by Linton and Christopher Hamlin and others that, you know, we have have medicine because of this effort to understand how these different waters impacted human bodies or affected human bodies. Because waters were not only just for cooking beans and for washing horses and things like this, waters were for curing and they had been for thousands of years and different waters cured different things. So the water from the spring at Lourdes would cure this thing, and the water from you know, the Pellegrino Springs would cure that malady. And slowly, people tried to systematize. Scientists and early natural philosophers were systematizing these relationships between waters, ailments, and cures. And so it becomes a real focus of science and medicine, the study of waters. There's all kinds of literature um, starting in sort of the 1600s, up up really until about the 1900s, 1920s, a huge enormous amount of literature about this, analyzing the water, what's in the water, what makes it agential, what makes it cure human bodies. Um, I could not ignore that. That seemed to be such a huge part of the story that um, it became part of the book that I wrote as well, um, and. You know, one thing I like to try to show in this book is that, again, there are sort of these long-term processes. And conceptually, one that I already mentioned was this, this balance between promise and peril and sort of a, a political sense of how do we manage populations, how we manage people, how do people get managed through their bathing practices. Another long-term process that I'm interested in is precisely this balance between homogeneity and heterogeneity in waters. Um Certainly, if you're building ever-larger systems, you're homogenizing waters by bringing them all together. And so rather than just sort of an intellectual process in in which Lavoisier and and other sort of chemists and and doctors in the 18th and 19th centuries sort of just thought waters into one uniform substance, I tried to show that this is actually done through the building of infrastructure. Um, And I tried to show it in the case mostly of Mexico City how with expansion of infrastructure, you get not simply the the concept of uniform, homogeneous water at the sort of disposal of humans to be manipulated by humans, but also the reality of a water that was now also mixed (laughs) and and homogenized. Um, So that happens over the long time period, but it's not a unidirectional process. Um, They never are, these, these tendencies we see in history. They always have a sort of another side to them. And so, you know, drawing on, I guess, my own understanding of the dialectics of history, which is sort of the way I, I understand history to operate, I was constantly seeing how heterogeneity was was actually created and reproduced through the homogenization of water. What does that mean? Well, one thing it means is that if you're actually trying to um, create a public water thats that, is, that complies with uniform health standards, you know, homogeneous water that complies with uniform health standards. To even do that, you have to start from the premise that waters are heterogeneous, sorry, heterogeneous, and they have all sorts of different properties. So the project of creating and thinking through homogeneous water required as a first step an appraisal and understanding of all the diversity of waters that exist. And it's still the case. If people are testing waters, they're testing the diversity of waters to try to make sure or or that they comply with the uniformity or standards of uniformity. Um, another way in this in which this heterogeneity and homogeneity as a sort of a dialectics proceed through time in Mexican bathing and drinking cultures is through is through um the bottling and bathing of mineral waters. Mineral waters were always considered to be efficacious waters important for curing. So with the creation of public water, homogeneous public water, these spring waters became increasingly important as healing substances. So even as you get big infrastructures in cities, creating sort of homogeneous water, you get industries dedicated to bottling very specific kinds of waters or channeling those waters into bath houses. you know, and it's an interesting it's an interesting <clears throat> I think an interesting story to tell because many of the assumptions that we have about you know businesses, about the way that things are bought and sold and produced, the way the comp commodities are produced, it forces us to think again about those. Because if you if you're bottling water as a commodity, you're bottling it not because it's the same, you know, reproduced commodity. Um, but rather because it has some unique property to it. Um, oftentimes we think of commoditization as a process of of, of homogenization, let's say. Um, whereas you know, a, a um, industrial commodity would sort of erase diversity. Um, what I see in in the commoditization of waters through bathing and bottling is the opposite. That you're getting the reproduction of diversity and heterogeneity through the commodity form. I mean, without that, without that unique nature of a water, it would be really hard to sell it as anything different from any other water. So, you know, and all the waters that we drink today out of bottles, all these mineral waters that are circulating the globe are premised on that same, that same argument, that same notion that there's something unique about one water or another water. If you're drinking water from Fiji, it's somehow different from drinking water from Calistoga or from, um, you know, uh, a spring in in Italy or a spring in in France. And so, I think it's interesting to sort of rethink some of our concepts or assumptions about um, heterogeneity, homogeneity, industrialization, and this the form of the commodity. Um, as it takes root in, in our water cultures as well.
0: Yeah, and so this heterogeneity, uh, I suppose one side of it is, is bottling it and bringing it uh, to consumers somewhere. The other is to bring the consumers to the place and uh, the development of tourism around these sites. When did that begin to develop in Mexico and, and how did local communities deal with that?
1: Right. Um, that's a really interesting question. It was, it was one of the questions that Mexican scientists and doctors, especially in the really in 18th and 19th century, were, were always asking themselves. You know, when, how, why in Europe do they have these spas built around mineral springs that everyone goes to? And why, in, why is it that in, in the Americas that we, we haven't achieved that? Um, it was a model. It was a goal to build these kinds of things in, in the Americas, in Mesoamerica. But it was it never really happened until really the late 19th century, early 20th century. And there were many efforts, that's for sure. In fact, you see from the very beginning, early on, I think in the 1540s, we get mention of a bathhouse right next to Mexico City in a place called Peñón de los Baños. It's right nearby Mexico City. And it was actually founded by a priest. Um, so, you know, the priests that were sent to sort of question bathing traditions that traditions actually were were instrumental in 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 creating them or or reproducing them the priest got of course followed follow up by his um by his church like what why exactly was he creating a bathhouse here and what was he using it for and he convinced them it was only for very wholesome things like healing his arthritis and things like this but from the very beginning there was an effort to create um bathhouses and and bathing infrastructure that would attract uh, people to it for curing. And spas were originally about curing. And then as time went by, they became more and more about leisure, about leisure time. And again, the, the, the story is told relatively well for Europe. We have some good a good amount of literature about Europe and not really that much about the Americas. Or, and so what you see in, in the Americas is that this idea of mineral waters as sort of an important place for people to go to, to, you know, take a cure or, or to, you know, retire to for for leisure, it's there and it's motivating people to develop bathhouses, but they never quite get it consolidated. There are moments, there's a moment in the late 1800s when there's a certain amount of, um, you know, wealth circulating around uh the Americas, um, during what they call the period of the bourbon re- reforms, there was sort of new mining technologies and, and new taxing st- structures and things like this that sort of stimulated the economy. And I think because of that, that um, you know, economic uh, effervescence, let's say, at that moment, there was an effort to rebuild that, that bathhouse in Peñón de los Baños, the one that was founded way back in the 1500s. It was seen as decrepit. No one would go there. Um, uh, and so, you know, they did a big study of the mineral waters to find out what they were useful for and how they could cure people. And then they rebuilt the the bathhouse itself. Um, it attracted people, people went, well, people is a, is a very vague and general term. So part of the whole story is that people had always been going to this bathhouse, no matter how decrepit it was. It just wasn't that the elite were going there because it, the popular people were going there and elites would never mix with the popular folks at a bathhouse. So what it was a, actually an effort to do was to sort of rebuild it for wealthy elite users. Um, and so they did that in the late, ni- late 18th century, and they did that again in the late 19th century. Um, so you see the the, pop- the popularity of of, bat- of bathing in these mineral springs, especially the one in Peñón de los Baños. It never fades. I mean, in the, in the strict sense of the, the popular people would, would continue to go. Everyday p- folks would go in, and use these spaces. It was just that the, the wealthy and the elite would, would go through sort of cycles of, of fashion with these, with these bathhouses. They would rebuild them and attend and go to them for a while, and then they would fade out again. And so, if you look at the long history of Mexico, you see this in the late 1800s, you see this happening. They rebuild the bathhouse. People go. They open up a shop. They sell all kinds of fine foods. People go for whole weekends. You know, rich people do. And then it fades again in the beginning of the 19th century when you get all the wars for independence and you get political turmoil again and you get sort of less uh, liquidity in the economic system. People stop going to that bathhouse. Again, in the late 19th century when – there's a more disposable money again um, that gets rebuilt once again, again for the elite people of Mexico, and they go and they attend it for maybe twenty or thirty years, and then and then it kind of becomes a popular place again as well. And I would say that in right now, what we're seeing is another wave of this. We're seeing a wave throughout the world of people of wealthy people going back and taking over these waters again um you're rebuilding the bathhouses turning them into sort of luxury spas after a time in the mid 20th century when they were often abandoned in the United States and Mexico and elsewhere or if they weren't abandoned they were at least abandoned by the wealthy people who had sort of moved on and were doing other things so you know in in the Ameri- in, in the in Europe I think what you see is a constant use of the bathhouses um, by all, I guess all sectors of society. And what you get in Mexico is the is the popular classes using these waters, you know, pretty, you know, um, continuously. But it's the wealthy sort of come and go. They rebuild the bathhouse. It falls into disrepair. They'll rebuild it again. You know, a century later, it'll fall into repair and then – and so on and so forth through time. Um, so that's one of the differences, I think, in um, – in in this history of spas and tourism. In in concrete, in in concretely in the history of Mexico, the, the, the waters, the mineral waters really get turned into tourist destinations starting in the late 19th century in a massive way, in a national way, let's say. And that's with the construction of railroads and transportation infrastructure that can bring, not only you know Mexicans from the cities out to these mineral springs where they can go to the baths, but also tourists from the United States and from elsewhere can then also circulate through Mexico and 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 use these sites as tourist destinations. And that really starts in the 1880s with the construction of the the railroads um, that link the north to the south in Mexico. And cities like, you know, Aguas Calientes, which means hot waters, uh, cities like that, which had always had um, hot waters and people had always used them, then became big bathing establishments um, with big bathhouses and things like this. And so that's really when it takes off. And it, it develops throughout the late 19th century into the early 20th century. There is a Mexican Revolution from 1910 to 1920 in which you know, tourism sort of, you know, for obvious reasons, goes away. But after the revolution is over, when uh, the people who sort of take over after the revolution, those groups that win the revolution, let's say, part of their national development strategy is precisely to develop these um, these mineral uh, waters as tourist sites. Some of those, nation- those elites who won the revolution – were from um, northern Mexico where they had had that experience where they had seen tourism as an important sort of path of development um, and precisely around mineral springs. And so they sort of brought with them that experience to national government and there were were different efforts throughout the first half of the 20th century to develop different towns um, and their mineral springs as national and even international tourist destinations. Um, So that's when you... You know so it's really sort of 1880 to 1950 let's say when all of these mineral waters um are sort of developed and there's an archive a wonderful archive in Mexico City called the archive of water the, the national water archive and um there's a whole there's whole big folders full of you know hot springs archives and and there's so many plans precisely in these years for for developing mineral springs and hot springs into tourist destinations um so mm. it's 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 clear that that's a, that's a moment in which this is really uh, sort of being built out this sort of
0: yeah yeah were was were these largely uh created or motivated from from national or international capital or were local communities trying to develop their their own tourist economies
1: right that's a really um complicated and good question that's i think in the 19th century certainly there was, um, an, it was an effort when when they rebuilt, for example, Peñón de los Baños, or the, when they built Aguas Calientes. Most of them, sort of in the center part of Mexico, I think, were the projects of national, um, you know, national elites. Let's say, pe- you know, pe- Mexicans with money trying to sort of develop spa tourism and 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 spa sites. However, there were in the northern parts of Mexico, along the border. Um, there was a lot more influence of, uh, you know, Americans and other foreigners. And there are, there has been in Northern Mexico, more of a sort of influence of, of let's say, um, others, other groups. Um, so there are some hot springs in Northern Mexico, like Topo Chico, which is near the city of Monterrey that were projects that, um, involved a lot of, um, foreigners as well. Um, so, so a little bit of both, um, but I would say in, in the late 19th century, uh, up until the revolution, certainly uh, mostly a national project. Um, in And then much more so after the revolution, everything gets cast um, much more explicitly in national terms after the revolution, after 1920. Um, these become national waters. Um, they're governed by a national water agency. Um, they get put to the purpose of national economic development or national health care and things like this. So there's a real uh, explicit framing of, of of the use of waters and their development as tourist destinations in sort of national terms after the revolution in particular. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any, um, but, but, you know, again, as a sort of, you know, this is the, the water cultures in Mexico that, would motivate people to go and actually use these hot springs. Certainly there were a lot, there are long indigenous traditions, but a lot of it really is European, you know, and, and then derived from Romans, bef- you know, Romans uh, originally in Europe. So in that sense, it's a bathing cultures and drinking, you know, cultures in Mexico do retain this sort of international aspect to them. They're constantly being fed anew by, Um, developments in science and in popular culture and and leisure activities in Europe, um, as well as as North America, as well as the United States. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you. This has been a wonderful interview. Have have, um, I failed to ask you about any part of your book that you want to make sure is included here?
1: Um, you know, there's there's so much in there that um, it's, hard to, it's hard to get it all into a, a little interview. I really thank you for all these wonderful questions. One thing I guess I would, I would, um, I would stress, I suppose, is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm an anthropologist who looks to history to sort of understand what's going on today. And I guess I started with this a little bit, and I'll finish with it as well, that th- this exercise was really to understand how and why we value waters today the way we do um, and to perhaps uncover some some traditions that can help us rethink um, our our relationship to waters that will put us on a path to a bit more of a sustainable uh, future. Uh, so I think a lot of these longstanding uh, understandings and appreciations that we have for water, our love for water, the joy we feel when we're in water, the, the healing, the soothing uh, influence it has on us. I think these are things we need to look to if we really think that we're going to develop a, a sustainable relationship with our with our waters into the future. And I think they're present everywhere. I think if you look around today, you'll see all these elements I've been talking about, the heterogeneity of waters, those values which sort of go beyond just the water bill we get every month uh, from our water service provider, um, all these in- interactions and engagements we have with water, drinking a big glass of water after you've taken a long hot uh walk in in the in the in the hills or the woods is is an amazingly refreshing and positive experience and if we can sort of engage with those uh culturally constructed experiences of water i think i think we'll we'll do a better job in managing this research and re resource sorry and and living with our with our water into the future so i would sort of end on that note that it's it's really uh a, a historical it's a history sort of aimed at a future
0: yeah well, thanks. So what, what's next on your radar? What's your next project going to be about?
1: Well, you know, um, I guess I, I have this uh, – I, I sort of bounce from one thing to the next, but it's still about water. What I'm doing now is um, research on groundwater. And some of the book is about the opulence of that, – that the Virtuous Waters book that we've been discussing is about that, that opulence of water that comes about in the late 19th century with access to groundwater. And what I'm studying now is sort of the last sort of, is the last gasp of unregulated groundwater access in California and the process of regulating access to to groundwater that's happening in our state now. And I think it's going to, it's a process that has to happen all over the world because groundwater resources are just, are being depleted um, very quickly. And so, this is something that we're facing around the world, how to manage and understand our, our groundwaters. And so I'm doing a present day study of this process, uh, sort of a, a regulatory process that's unfolding in, Mex- in, in, sorry, in California, in rural California, trying to understand how people under, you know, think of these waters, how they conceptualize these waters, which are unseen and hard to see. And then also sort of the political process of, of, of regulating them and And the role of these understandings of this water, scientific understandings, popular understandings for this regulatory process. So still on water, still on, I guess, the politics of water, but now moving into the present day uh, and, and, and pressing issues around groundwater.
0: Yeah. Well, I look forward to when that comes out and good luck with that. Thanks, Lance. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time.